We continue this morning in our sermon series through the New Testament book of Romans, and we are beginning chapter 3 today. But chapter 3 starts essentially by making sure we're all good with chapter 2. That Paul has been teaching this kind of stuff so often that he knows when to expect objections to what he has to say. And so even though Paul very clearly throughout chapter 2 explained how God's judgment of all people is fair, he knows that most, if not all people, are inclined to think that's not fair when it comes to me and my sin. I don't like God's judgment. And so in Romans chapter 3, verses 1 through 8, we see Paul answering and silencing some of these objections related to God's fairness of judgment. So I'll invite you, if you would, you can open your bulletins or your Bibles. We're going to be in Romans chapter 3 today, chapter 3, verses 1 through 8, as we continue our study Paul's letter to the Christians in the church in Rome, the capital of the empire. Let us hear the word of God. Then what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? Much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, What shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way. By no means! For then how could God judge the world? But if through my lie, God's truth abounds to His glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may come? As some people slanderously charge us with saying, their condemnation is just. Let us pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. God, we thank you that we do not live in a time where we do not know you, where we have not heard from you. But we thank you, Lord, for this fullness of revelation that we have the Scriptures as our sole authority, our ultimate authority for faith and practice. And so we have sure and certain information in your Word, the right information, what we need to know. And so, God, give us ears to hear. I pray, Lord, that you would use me to faithfully proclaim your word, that we might understand it, that you would work through your word and spirit in answer to our prayers, and so use your word as you have promised to do. And so open our ears to hear, open our hearts and minds to receive, and work in us by your word and spirit to transform us, to save sinners, to make us alive in Christ, but also to conform us to the image of Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen. So 
So going through Paul's letter to the Romans, we, we've been in it for a couple months now. And just as a reminder, Paul's letter to the Romans is somewhat unique among all his letters. That Romans contains the longest sustained section of teaching out of all of his letters. He does not take a break to address specific people or specific problems. He just lays out the gospel message and its implications for roughly 14 chapters. It's a lot. And so Paul has likely shared this very same message many, many, many times. And so he knows what to expect when people hear this message. And so occasionally in this sustained section of teaching, Paul pauses to say the objections he knows that people are thinking. Now I'm just going to answer these right now because I know you're going to have these questions. Because this wasn't a text message exchange. They couldn't interrupt and go, wait, Paul, but this. And so Paul has to essentially add their interruptions and answer those questions. And that's what we see he does here in chapter 3. And so what we're going to do is we're going to look at three of these objections and see how he succinctly answers each one of them. And so the first objection deals with that very last section of chapter 2 where Paul explained that possessing God's commands, his word, and performing his rituals, specifically circumcision, that those were no guarantee of salvation. That God cares about obedience, but he looks at our heart more than any external obedience and outward actions. And so Paul anticipates a kind of objection in verse 1. Here's what he says. Then what advantage has the Jew... Or what is the value of circumcision? And so Paul anticipates someone essentially asking, well, what's the point of being Jewish if we're not like automatically saved by being Jewish? What is the point of it if it doesn't keep you safe from judgment? And we can broaden that objection for our context a little bit. What value is there in being religious if it doesn't guarantee your salvation? Now, that sounds like a pretty good question. But hidden underneath that question is a bad assumption. This objection implies that being religious is only worth it if we get something out of it. That being God's people on its own is not enough. That we want something out of this. And so this objection has a transactional attitude towards God and religion. I'll do this, but I better get something. And so the thought process goes something like this. Okay, God, I'll go to some worship services. I'll give you some money. I'll say some prayers. I'll try to be good, but you better give me some stuff in return. Now, does that sound like someone who trusts in God? Does that sound like someone who loves God, who honors God, who worships God? No. It sounds like someone calling their cable company to try to negotiate a lower monthly bill. That's what it sounds like. And so Paul's response in verse 2 exposes this selfish transactional attitude. 
And so he writes, much in every way, meaning the value. There's much value in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. And so Paul gives just one big old advantage right there with being Jewish and following biblical religion. You have the oracles of God. You have God's word. Now that word oracles is kind of weird for us, but essentially it seems to mean that just all the stuff in God's word, not just the commands like the Ten Commandments, but all the the stories, the prophecies, the prayers, everything that's in there, the Jews had it. They had the right stuff to know about God. That being among the people of God, as Abby shared with the kids in the children's message, gives you many, many great privileges of knowing the truth about God. And even though the possession of these things did not guarantee salvation, it, it is a valuable benefit. You have access to true knowledge of God. And true knowledge of God, if received rightly, will lead to salvation. But that leads right into Paul's second objection. We see it in verses 3 and 4. You see, many of the Jews who possessed God's Word did not receive the salvation promised in God's Word. Many of the people to whom God revealed Himself did not respond rightly to that revelation. They rebelled against God. They disregarded Him and His Word. And so Paul asks the question, what if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? This objection is essentially asking, is God to blame for His people failing to receive the salvation He promised? Paul is probably thinking broadly here about the Jewish failure to trust in God. It's a subject he will pick up on in chapter 11 of Romans. Because throughout Israel's history, if you read it, you're like, you know, like, they didn't always listen, didn't always obey, it didn't go so well. Even though God made himself known to them, they rejected him, they went their own way. And we see this happen again in the Gospels when Jesus came and ministered among the Jewish people that many of the Jews, and especially the religious leaders who knew the word best, rejected the very Messiah they were hoping would come. And so Paul's question here is asking, well, is that God's fault? Is it God's fault that his people have failed? Should he have revealed himself more clearly Should God have done something differently so that his people would be more likely to believe in him? And Paul's answer is in verse 4. By no means. That's a no. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar. And then he quotes from Psalm 51. As it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. Paul's saying there, even if every single Jew, every single Israelite in history were to be unfaithful, God would still not be to blame for their failure. Do you hear that? Even if every single Jewish person, every single descendant of Abraham were to fail to believe, God would not be responsible for their failure. 
And we hear that and we're like, that doesn't sound right. That doesn't sound right at all. And so we start thinking like, okay, well, imagine there's a school teacher who's trying to teach a concept to her class. But no one in her class is able to understand the concept. She gives them a test and they all fail it. We would likely fault the teacher's ability to teach that subject. Or we might at least fault the teacher and like, why are you teaching thermodynamics to five-year-olds? Like, that doesn't seem like a very good idea. If all the students failed, we would assume the students are not at fault. But that's not so with God and humanity. Because humans are all sinful. We all have a natural disposition to distrust God and rebel against Him. The problem is never the teacher. It is always the sinful students. God is so much better than we are. And so the more fitting comparison, though it's still imperfect, is imagine playing a game of horse with Steph Curry. He's a professional basketball player. Horse, for those of you that don't know, you're trying to make the shot that the other person makes, and you try, it's kind of like, do what I do, okay? You're not going to be able to beat Steph Curry in a game of horse. It's just not happening. You're not going to be able to make the shots that he makes. And that doesn't make him a bad teacher. It doesn't mean he's a bad basketball player. It just shows how good he is compared to you. And this is what God's faithfulness is like. He is so much more faithful compared to our unfaithfulness. But that again raises more questions that Paul anticipates. He brings them up in verses 5 through 8. And you could split these up into two separate objections, but they're pretty much the same thing. So we're going to blend them together. And thinking about basketball and Steph Curry again, the objection would go like this. Well, if... Our terrible basketball ability makes Steph look this much better. Shouldn't we just like keep missing shots? Shouldn't we just like throw up crazy, awful shots and just intentionally miss them? Because the more shots we miss, the better this guy who's really good at basketball will be. Why would you fault me for missing shots when it's only making him look better? That's really what Paul is asking, but not about Steph Curry, but about God. Verse 5, if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? He notes I speak in a human way. He continues in verse 7, If through my lie God's truth abounds to His glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And so Paul is taking this argument. And for us, it sounds kind of silly when we turn it into basketball, because missing a basketball shot is not something morally wrong. It's just, you know, sad. We wish we could be better. But unfaithfulness to God is morally wrong. It's sinful. It deserves judgment. And that's how Paul answers in verse 6. By no means. For then how would God judge the world? God must judge evil. He would not be good if He failed to judge the sins of mankind. And so we may, understandably, get all bothered. God's going to judge my sins. 
That doesn't seem very good. I get that. We'll hold that for a minute. But you want them to judge the sins of others, don't you? The atrocities in the history of the world, you want them to be judged by God, don't you? Just think about the atrocities recently committed by Hamas in Israel. We want those to be judged. You want them to be held accountable for their sins. You don't want them to just, hey, keep doing it. The more unrighteous you are, the more righteous God will seem. And then it just like, that thing you thought was your salvation just melts in your mouth into poison. I guess that's not the answer. God must judge evil. And so Paul shows the logical extension of us trying to find a way out of judgment is this. Well, why not do evil that good may come? That in an effort to escape God condemning our sins, we condemn ourselves to a world where wickedness is encouraged. Paul notes that some people accuse him of teaching this. That he preaches about grace and some people mistake him and they think he's telling people, keep on sinning so that God can show you even more grace. Now, Paul will answer that in chapter 6, but here he makes it clear That's not what I am doing. That is a horrible way to go. God must judge evil, even your evil. So we might read these objections here in verses 1 through 8 of chapter 3, and we might think, okay, Paul, he had kind of leftovers. These are almost like the footnotes to chapter 2. That this kind of grab bag of questions that didn't deserve a paragraph, they really only needed a quick sentence to get rid of them. They're kind of disconnected. But that's a mistake. Because there's a unifying motive in these objections. A motive that we can find in our own hearts as well. That all of these objections spring from a deeply held belief that God is good and therefore He must bless people. That God is good and therefore He must bless people. Isn't God supposed to be faithful to His promises to bless His people? Isn't God supposed to be loving and merciful? Doesn't God have to be gracious to us? Sure, God might judge some people, but surely He has to be good to me, right? That's where these objections come from. These objections look for hope in God's goodness, but it is a confused understanding of God's goodness. Because they can only see God's goodness in blessing But the Bible tells us God is also good when He judges sin. In the sermon outline in your bulletin, I included this quote from a commentator. I think he puts it really well. He writes this, Too easily do we forget that God's ultimate concern is for His own glory and not for our blessing. That His righteousness is beautifully displayed when He judges as well as when He saves. 
We must not forget that God promises in the New Testament as well as the Old Testament to rebuke and chastise His people for sin as well as to bless them out of the abundance of His grace. Do you hear what he's saying? That when we think about God's goodness and faithfulness, we almost always narrow that to be God is good and faithful when He blesses His people. But God's goodness and faithfulness are not just in blessing. God's goodness and faithfulness are also in judgment. He is faithful to keep His Word to judge sin. We saw that in our Old Testament reading from Nehemiah 9. The people prayed, You, O God, have been righteous in all that has come upon us, for You have dealt faithfully, and we have acted wickedly. Nehemiah is saying, God, You have been good and faithful even in judgment. And Nehemiah is not saying this about some other sinful people. They're saying it about themselves. About God's people being judged for their sin and how God is faithful. See, God would not be good or faithful if He ignored His promises to judge sin. Sin must be punished. It is good for God to do it even when it's our own sin. God has said He will judge sin, and if He fails to judge sin, He is a liar. But God is no liar. God is faithful to His Word, whether that Word is a word of blessing or a word of judgment. God is always faithful to all of His Word. And so we are left with a question that Paul has yet to answer for us. How can God be good in blessing sinners when these same sinners deserve judgment? And our New Testament reading points us in the right direction because it points us to Jesus. In verse 9 there, kind of the, the center of the assurance of pardon that we use, John writes this, If we confess our sins... He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. Notice what he didn't write. John did not write, if we confess his sins, God is merciful and gracious to forgive us our sins. That doesn't mean it's not true. It's just not what he says. He says God is faithful and just to forgive our sins. Because of Jesus. For God judged our sin in the death of Jesus so that He could be faithful to His Word to judge our sin. And by punishing Jesus in our place, God could also be faithful to His promises about forgiving our sins and saving sinners. He could uphold justice while extending mercy. And so John is correct to write that if we confess our sins to God, He is faithful to all His Word and just with all righteousness and sin to forgive us. He is faithful in both of His promises to punish sin and forgive sin when He forgives us. It's all because of Jesus. But that means if we do not look to Jesus for the forgiveness of our sins, God still must be faithful to His Word. And if we try to claim that God, I want you to be good to me apart from Jesus, 
God will be good to you apart from Jesus. He will be good to you by punishing your sins. He will be good and faithful to you by condemning your selfishness and evil in His holy wrath. Because God has not promised to show every single person mercy on their own. God has promised to bless us in Christ. It is only in Christ that our forgiveness and salvation is found. Because it is only in Christ that God can be faithful and just to forgive our sins. Because it was Jesus who died in our place. What we here in the church need to know is that God has made this clear in His Word. God has not failed to communicate it. You, by virtue of being here, have the privilege of hearing this truth. And so do not merely hear it today. Believe it. Receive it. Know that God is faithful to His Word. Know that He promises to judge sins. And your only hope as a sinner is to confess those sins and trust that my sins have been judged in Jesus. And in Him alone will I find forgiveness. Let us pray. O Lord, You are good. You are perfectly good in all Your ways. And so we pray, O God, that You would humble us, that You would silence our objections, and that You would let us hear Your Word. And Lord, I pray that You would help us to see our own sinfulness and need for forgiveness and to see that it is only possible in Christ. Lord, may we run to Him. May we fall before Him. And may we know that when we confess our sins and look to Jesus, Lord, You will be faithful. And we can rest assured that we will indeed be forgiven in Him. And we will receive all of the goodness of Your blessings in our Lord Christ. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.